Welcome to Living Well into the Future. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. This series is about topics that are important to all of us, food, housing, climate, health. We look forward to introducing you to our guests, men and women ranging in age from their teens through their 90s. Some are national, even international experts in their field, some you may never have heard of. With a layering of diverse voices from different generations, we hope to increase understanding between the various generations, learn what their contributions and experiences were and are, the challenges and the victories, and how we can work together. Our next several episodes will deal with food, where it comes from, having too much or too little, and what is just right. I don't know about you, but I've always tried to eat healthily and make sure my family did the same. But I first started questioning dietary recommendations after my second son was born. It was the 70s. When my first son was born, we were told only give your child low-fat milk. Four years later, the recommendation was give the child whole milk. Later in the 80s, there was a swing back to low-fat, and I subjected my family to the low-fat and loving it diet. They do not remember it fondly. Ironically, that diet and ones like it have been blamed for the obesity epidemic that we see today. With this episode, we wanted to take a step back from the recommendations of the moment to look at why we like the food we like, the memories associated with it, and healthy food no matter where in the world you live. We'll talk about good food the familiar and the foreign in the first part of her exploration, and food that is good for you in the second half. I understand that cuisine is an extraordinarily subtle, complex form of human behavior, and it can't be reduced to a certain easy formula. But what I said was, look, if you take soy sauce and rice wine and ginger root and put those together all the time, no matter what you put them on, it's going to taste Chinese because that's what the Chinese use all the time in their flavoring systems. Similarly, if you take olive oil and garlic and tomatoes and basil, well, we all know what that turns out to be. So that flavor is a really defining characteristic of all ethnic cuisine. That's our first guest, the late Elizabeth Rosen. We're presenting excerpts from my 2001 interview with her to provide a context for the interviews with the guests that follow. She's known as a cookbook author and food historian. Her first book, Ethnic Cuisine, The Flavor Principle, was published in 1983. Almost 30 years later, the author John Prescott, in an article on the mathematics of flavor, directly linked her work to a 2011 study that mathematically proved her earlier work. Whether each generation rediscovers things that are universal or builds upon the past, and what we have to learn from each generation are among the questions that underlie this series. And now, Elizabeth Rosen. How would you describe yourself? I would simply describe myself as a passionate cook, a passionate eater, and someone who cares deeply about providing some understanding of food and cuisine as cultural systems. 
You're the author of six books. Where did the idea for this first book come from? Actually, it really grew out of my life experience from traveling, from eating, and from trying to reproduce all the food that I'd eaten in my travels around the world. And as I say, I am a passionate eater. And I came home from various travels trying to reproduce what I'd eaten and found after a while had a very good hit rate and I was not a trained cook and don't regard myself as a culinary genius of any sort, but I, I realized that I was operating according to certain principles. And when I realized what those principles were, I thought, uh-huh, I can teach everybody else to use them, too. And that was the basis of the book. Are the flavor principles that you described in the Flavor Principle Cookbook the ones that you apply to your subsequent work? Absolutely, yes. Of course, it's a simplification. I understand that cuisine is an extraordinarily subtle, complex form of human behavior, and it can't be reduced to a certain easy formulae. But what I said was, look, if you take soy sauce and rice wine and ginger, root and put those together all the time, no matter what you put them on, it's going to taste Chinese because that's what the Chinese use all the time in their flavoring systems. Similarly, if you take olive oil and garlic and tomatoes and basil, well, we all know what that turns out to be. So that flavor is a really defining characteristic of all ethnic cuisine. We've been speaking to Elizabeth Rosen about the flavor principles, and now we're going to talk Talk to her about the subject for her next book, The Universal Kitchen. Tell us, what is universal? Well, there's quite a lot that's universal, including the need to provide flavor. My first book, The Flavor Principle, described and distinguished cuisines in terms of their individual constellations of seasoning ingredients. So you could distinguish Chinese from Japanese, from Korean, from Thai, etc. It told us what was different and unique about ethnic cooking. In the Universal Kitchen, I sort of take the telescope and turn it around and say, actually, when you look at cuisine anywhere in the world, you see that everybody is really doing the same thing. We're all taking animal foods and plant foods and grains and so forth and pretty much doing the same kinds of things with them. And isn't that interesting? And what, in fact, are those various things that we do with our foods that are all similar, that are similar across culture. And there are some that aren't so obvious. I mean, yes, we all make soup. And yes, we all make stews with meat and vegetables and so forth. And we all grind our grains into some kind of meal or flour to make some kind of bread or pasta product. But things, for example, like condiments. People don't often think about that, although they certainly have become a major part of our eating experience nowadays. And when you think of the inside door, of your refrigerator, you will know about which I speak because they're filled with little jars and bottles that we only eat with other foods. A condiment is a kind of a relish, a pick-me-up, an adornment, an enhancement to the food that you've already cooked. And when you look at cultures all over the world, they're doing the same kinds of things. They're using different ingredients, perhaps, a fruit here or a different kind of vegetable there, but we're giving intense, salty, sweet acidic, hot experiences to perk up our cooked food. And cross-culturally, we're all doing it in the same kind of way. I find that fascinating. Salads, we all eat raw vegetables. And they'd be rabbit food. 
unless we dress them with some kind of, the basic is, an acid and salt. And wherever you go in the world, you're going to find acid and salt being used as a dressing for salad. Fascinating business. It is. Now, in, in your book, you mentioned that our palates, as we grow up in different places, are used to different things. So that what might take good to us, the United States might taste too bland or too salty or too something in other cultures. I think we adapt to our food and it is after all the reason why there is one of the reasons why there is such a movement to get back to the kitchen garden kind of thing that we are in many ways evolved to deal with the foods that were available to us in sort of limited eco habitats. You don't, for example, if you are in a, a polar Eskimo have peaches and mangoes in your daily diet. They don't grow. They're not natural. It's not to say you shouldn't eat them, but we've grown accustomed to having so many things available all of the time in and out of season that we no longer know what our areas traditionally provided. But of course, cuisine did that in traditional ways. If you lived in a small village, let's say in Mexico, you were used to eating the kinds of foods that naturally grew there that had been grown and cultivated for many, many untold centuries. And as a young infant or as a child, no, you would not, you did not, you do not appreciate the pain that a chili pepper provides in your palate. Nonetheless, it is a food that is valued by your culture. And as you grow up and become an adult, part of becoming an adult is learning to appreciate the foods and the sensations that are valued by your culture. And so you learn to appreciate sensations that hot chilies provide. Whereas if you grow up in Norway, it's going to be very hard for you ever to appreciate that because your palate has never had those sensations. That was the late Elizabeth Rosen in 2001. At the outset, I mentioned that the flavor principles she described in the 1980s were validated in 2012. You can also see the ideas she expressed in the Universal Kitchen and the Flavor Principle Cookbook reflected in the 2017-2018 books and Netflix documentary, Salt, Fat, Acid, and Heat. Do we forget past knowledge? Reinvent it? How can we build upon the past with the insights of the present to build a better future for all? As you listen to our next two guests, you will hear descriptions of flavor that make their foods distinctive. Both men were born in the United States, but in two very different cultures and at different times. As Elizabeth Rosen illuminated in her books, the foods and flavors they experienced were unique, but the principles universal. Listen for the types of foods that they ate that may be like those that you were brought up with, but in different form, like tortillas rather than bread or salsa instead of ketchup. Peter Alvarez, now 70, relates his experiences with food when he was growing up in the 1950s. I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, on the south side of Tucson, which is pretty relative to where we came from. When the Yaquis were being persecuted by the Federales and the Spaniards, 
at the turn of the century, a lot of us, instead of being shipped to the Yucatan as slave labor, continued to migrate north. And they migrated to the Santa Rita Mountains in Tucson, Arizona. Tucson is surrounded by mountains. They were miners by trade. Let's back up. Your background is Yaqui. Indian. You grew up in a small town? It was a small section of Tucson. There were many farms at the time. We were self-sufficient. So that's where I grew up. I grew up with my maternal grandmother. So she was matriarch. She was a matriarch, and unfortunately, my dad spent a lot of time in the penitentiary, so whenever he would go back to the penitentiary, my mom had eight of us. We would go back and live with my grandmother. So the early years were very special because I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. Where did you get the food that was put on your table when you were living with your grandmother? Did it come from the small farm? Some of it. The majority of it was already in the early 1950s through the 50s. So my grandmother was also a very famous cook. She would cook in the Mexican restaurants in downtown Tucson. So a lot of that came through the market and such. But there were some things that my grandmother was very good at in harvesting things that would grow mostly wild vegetation. Wild spinach, verdolagas were one of my favorite. They were the succulent that would come out when it would rain. There was desert turtles that we would eat. And then there was the mesquite tree had pechitas, as they were called. And they were the pods. And those were grind up. They were also very sweet. So you could actually chew on them. I remember my grandmother used to love to chew on the pechitas. But those were grind up into maize also. But the majority of it, we were already very keen to Walter's Market, where we would buy things. But things like beans and potatoes and things like that came from harvesting. So pencil beans, potatoes, Came from what your grandmother grew. Yeah. There was a small garden that, you know, she would keep. And did your grandmother grind the seeds then and, and make it into the uh, flour for the tortillas? Yeah, that was an old custom that went by the wayside once corn and, and flour was used. There were flour tortillas, there were corn tortillas, and then the bitchy does the, the mesquite pods. Do you still crave that taste? You... Not really. No, that's a far memory. I still crave the very thin tortillas that my grandmother made. She used to have a wood stove outside by the Ramada, and it was an old drum from a, from an oil drum, basically. And it was big. It was round. And she would make tortillas that would fit that mound, and they would come out very thin, almost wafer thin. And those were big tortillas. Would they then be stuffed? They would be stuffed. Sometimes she would fold them up and throw them in the beans. And we would have a tortilla and bean soup kind of mixture. Grandmother was very big on seasoning. I can't remember any meal that we didn't have chili. And chili wasn't also, it wasn't always hot. It was just the flavors of the different kinds of chili. Did you have a wide variety of chilies? Very much. There was red, green, small dry chilies, poblano, chitlipinas. Anaheim chili that were always part of our diet was chili. Chili was a big thing in our diet. I'm surprised now that a lot of people do not eat chili the way we did because I think it was very healthy. Being one of the staples in our, in all our food, chili was very important. You don't find the food anywhere else that you find in Tucson, Arizona, that area, because it is such a mixture of the Indian and the Mexican that make it so different. I found a, a Yaki Indian recipe, which was two different squashes, grilled, and then an onion and garlic, 
and they added tomato. I added pepper, and then they put cheese over it. It sounded like a very healthy and colorful thing to eat, very nourishing. It had all the elements. Did you have it? Yeah, those were called calabacitas. Ah. And the different kind of squash, there was a round squash, and then the zucchini-type squashes, and then the yellow squash also. Those were one of our favorite things to eat. And they always had cheese in them. And uh, the same thing, the same ingredients. One thing that I found that a lot of people eat is cilantro. We didn't eat cilantro. We ate oregano. And that's the secret ingredient in a lot of things. Whenever I make anything, oregano plays a big part. I just made turkey chili with a leftover turkey. And uh, it's turkey and red chili with garlic and onion. And then oregano. Oregano is the main spice. Did you become a wonderful chef like you were? When I was younger, I used to cook a lot more because there was big families. I was used to cooking for my younger brothers and my younger sister because there was eight of us. You're listening to Living Well into the Future, and we're going to take a short break. Welcome back to Living Well into the Future. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler, and I'm speaking with Peter Alvarez. Then on your journey, when did your diet start to change or did it change? I think that was a very interesting time because we were also very poor, even though we were very rich and the love of my grandmother and her family and the family unit. I was thinking about that question because one time I remember that the United States Agricultural Department would, uh, they were called commodities. And every month you would go and get your commodities. There was dry milk cornmeal, this horrible meat that tasted like Spam, but did not taste like Spam at all. And then of course, flour. So all those kind of things became a staple also. When I started going to school and things like that, life was already changing drastically for us. And so the commodities played a big part. The powdered milk was horrible, but <laughs> we had to eat it. We preferred evaporated milk, carnations evaporated milk. You buy a little can of it and it would go a long way. But that's when life changed also. We had cornmeal for breakfast, things like that, to eat lunch, which is great because it, one of the favorite things that we grew up with was always beans and tortillas. There was nothing else to eat. There was beans and tortillas. And the beans were always so flavorful and, and uh, wonderful that to this very day, you know, I crave beans. I'll make a pot of beans. And they were available from the garden? And from, yeah, from the dry. There was family all over. So there was family outside of Phoenix, my grandmother's sisters, and they would be gunny sack bags of food. Also, there was a southern part of us that towards Sierra Vista and Nogales, Arizona, where the same thing, the relatives would bring bags of chili, bags of onions, bags of beans, things like that. That they had grown themselves. Exactly. And your brothers and sisters, they stayed in Arizona, didn't they? Yeah. I was one of the ones that left. <laughs> but it's very, it was very different through the years because as we grew older, we were in batches. My two sisters and I were one batch, and then my sister and my brother were another batch, and then the last three boys were another batch, meaning that they were, by the time they were growing up, it was already the 70s, and they really didn't eat and uh, have the same kind of family unit that we had growing up. So what was their diet? Their diet was more processed. They ate a lot of fast food, canned food, things that we don't eat. You don't very seldom eat canned food at all. Most of it comes from fresh. So I and think that was the difference. Did it affect their health? Yeah, I think so. I, I, there's diabetes that runs in my family, type 2 diabetes, and some of them are diabetic. 
You heard Elizabeth Rosen mention that people are returning to kitchen gardens. And later in the program, Dr. Stephanie Belling will speak about the colorful, healthy foods she harvested from her garden, different from the foods from the farm of Peter Alvarez's grandmother because of the difference in location and climate. But healthy foods, healthier than the highly processed commodities that the younger generation of Peter Alvarez is family eight. Omero Toro was born in western Massachusetts in the early 70s. His parents were from Ecuador, and when in the U.S., they tried to reproduce the food of their homeland despite the distance and difference in climate and available food. Since his family traveled between Ecuador and the United States, hear how, for him, as for Peter Alvarez, the flavors of the food his family ate formed indelible memories. What are your memories of food that you had as a young child? Our food was different. And to my parents, especially to my mom, food was a big deal. I remember her talking about food and going to great lengths looking for familiar food or food that was similar to what she was used to back at home. Pretty much once a week, I remember getting in the back of the station wagon and going to East Hartford. As a kid, there was, let's say, like a barrio of Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. And that was similar enough And because they spoke Spanish. And if not... We would go, I remember go, we would go on Sundays, we would go to Delancey in New York City to, to Queens. And that was an adventure in itself. Well, Queens was a big part because I think there's, is, there's a big population of Ecuadorians and Colombians and people who spoke Spanish. And I just remember that my mom would always get so excited when she heard somebody speaking Spanish. And then she would ask and learn and write things down like, well, where can I get this or where can I get that or so she would learn that way because this is before the internet or maps or anything so everything was word of mouth do you remember what foods in particular they were looking for a lot were the staples different kinds of beans and plantains corn flour things like that and just i think different cuts of meat especially like pork and what we call a a kind of corn The, the closest thing is a harmony grit and things like that. And uh, achote, seasoning was a big thing for my mom to find. I read there were a lot of chilies. Yes, in it. a lot of it. And that's why I think a lot of it has that orange, reddish tint to it because of that. But it's not spicy or hot because it looks orange or red. But it's definitely you can tell the flavor because it is like this reddish orange and it has that tint to it. But also Ecuadorians are known for their ají, which is like a homemade, like a salsa hot sauce that everybody would have on their table. So it'd be like salt, pepper, and ahi. You needed those ingredients for those uh, things. Your family went back and forth to Ecuador. Yeah. Their intentions were to always to go back and to live there. At one point, you went back for three years. Yeah. How old were you then? I was 13. And what year was that? I think 83. Yeah. Did the politics of Ecuador affect you at all, or 
A little bit because it was so foreign to me. Just everything was so different. And at that time, there was a lot of ups and downs. Here, I think the, the stability, you take it for granted. How did the ups and downs affect you? Food was always available as long as you had money. I think we were lucky because the exchange rate was so good, and that really helped. Did you live with your grandmother at that point? My grandmother was, was big in my life at that time because my parents were going back and forth and I lived with my grandmother and my grandfather. I spent a lot of time with my grand. I think because I didn't really spend time with them before, and I really got along with my grandmother really well. You mentioned that you went to school there then. Yes. You, my high school. Yeah. And uh, would come back to your grandparents' place. And who was there then, and what were the meals oh, like? Oh, yeah, it was sort of like Thanksgiving every day for lunch at my grandparents' house. We got out of school at 1 o'clock. So everybody would go and meet at my grandparents' house. And my grandparents would cater at their house uh, lunch for everybody. And who was everybody? My family and my uncles and aunts and their children. And this was every day, Monday through Friday. It was one large long table which were for the adults and then in the other room it was pretty much us kids we were at the kids table until there was space or something but what was, would your grandmother prepare first of all my grandmother's kitchen always smelled like cilantro and we'd always start with a potato and there was always chicken parts in the soup simple but yet hearty and then you know we'd eat the soup and then there'd be a main course and it would always be of course, white rice, beans, and then some kind of meat, and also with a salad. You mentioned it was as fresh could be. How fresh was it? It was always really fresh. Ecuadorians don't like to freeze anything. <laughs> My grandmother always shopped only for two or three days. She planned out her meals really well. And then in the back of her house, she had a big garden and had everything pretty much everything she needed. I remember chickens and pigs um, and that kind of stuff. So, so she slaughtered her own. Yeah. Was she the one who butchered it? Yeah, that was one of the surprising <laughs> things I remember because my grandmother would come to me and ask me, she goes, what would you want for lunch? And this was maybe two hours before lunch. She said, well, how about chicken or a goat or lamb or something like that? And I would say, okay, yeah, it sounds good. And I would always think, yeah, I don't want to make a big deal. And my grandmother would always say, it's not a big deal. Whatever you want, we can do. And I said chicken one day. <laughs> and then I saw my grandmother said, okay, that's good. No, we, we can do that. She just went in the back, grabbed the chicken, wrung its neck. And then said, yeah, we'll have chicken for, <laughs> for lunch. So they can't get fresher than that. No, and my, like I said, my, my grandmother had a, a big garden. She grew potatoes, and I remember carrots. And what she couldn't grow or on her property, she would go to a local market. For both Peter Alvarez and Omero Toro, the food of their grandmothers, food from the land, whether a cultivated garden or the wildscape, formed the basis of their loving memories. As they grew, however, things changed. For Peter Alvarez, his first stop away from his home was to the mines. So on your journey, at some point, you wound up working in Tucson. Was that your first stop? Well, right out of high school, you either went to college, if you were afforded to, or you would go work at the mines. Most of us were miners. There was copper mines that surrounded Tucson, Anaconda, Kaiser, mines that were all employers of us. So I did work in the mine to try and get myself through school. By that point, I was going to Pima College and, and the University of Arizona. That was right after high school. But that's what we did. You either went to college or you went to uh, work at the, as a miner. 
And you um, tried to do both? I did both. I did try it. I did for a couple of years and then I had my daughter and I got married very young. And then the mine went on strike. Seminole mine uh, went on strike. And with the unemployment, I went to beauty school. As a flu, I had just discovered the beauty school through getting a haircut. And I decided that I would do that. From there, it just took me straight to Chicago and then from Chicago to New York. And I was taken up by two very big organizations. One was called Pivot Point and the other one was Sassoon, Vidal Sassoon. And they discovered I had magic hands. And so they sent me to New York to train and I've never looked back. It's my 41st year of hairdressing. So then Chicago was your first stop. Then on to New York. Mm -hmm. How long did you live in New York? I lived on and off for the last 30 years. When I finally came to Open Canyon Ranch in the Berkshires, I actually winded up for the first time having an apartment in New York and living in New York, which I always wanted. Was there anything familiar or anything you enjoyed? I enjoyed the fact that it, for the first time in my life, I was eating in restaurants and uh, being introduced to finer cuisine than I was ever used to. So that was nice. Yeah, but it was very American. And then you got to Canyon Ranch along this journey, which is all about health and fitness. Were you influenced by their attitudes about food and what kind of things you should be eating? Did it change your diet? Did it change your lifestyle? It did because it was all about fitness and getting healthier, especially Canyon Ranch in Tucson. Canyon Ranch started basically as a fat farm. Even though they didn't like to call it that later on, they would put you on 12 to 1800 calories a day. So you ate a lot of salads, a lot of very bland food. And yeah, that did change because he learned how to eat better. Things that you would shy away from. It's a lot of garlic, radishes, you know, Brussels sprouts, things that like that were very healthy, but not necessarily tasty. There was no salt. There was a, things like that were very different. So it did change your attitude. It, it Canyon Ranch made me healthy. I, I learned how to eat well and move away from things that were not healthy. And what were the things? Sugar. Uh, sugar was a big one. They tried to get me away from dairy and, and wheat, but I grew up on that, so I couldn't. Tortillas were, I'll never give up tortillas. What about exercise? Was that another element? Oh, yeah, that was very big. And that basically, Canyon Ranch was there at the right time, at the right place. There was a lot of fitness that we were doing that eventually was very hard on the body, high-stepping aerobics and aerobics in general. You had to tone all that down. But in the beginning, that's what it was. It was all about exercise. You'll note that exercise recommendations, like food recommendations, change over time. Thank you to Peter Alvarez and Omero Toro. Their descriptions make us think of the flavor principles of our own food, Perhaps they will lead us to be both more appreciative of food of different cultures and more adaptable to unfamiliar foods as supplies, climate, or availability of food changes in the future. Now we come to part two of this episode, food that is good for you. The link between parts one and two are Peter Alvarez. He and our next guest, Dr. Stephanie Belling both worked at Canyon Ranch in the Berkshires in Massachusetts in the 1990s. Dr. Belling, now 85, served as medical director of Canyon Ranch for 20 years. While there, she wrote, Good food, good health with phytochemicals, nature's own energy boosters. 
that book was ahead of its time. What inspired you to go to medical school? I think it's the usual story of people who grew up and went to college in the 50s. I, I say this with no irony or sarcasm or anything, but the majority of us went to college without a future in our heads, without a plan other than marriage and children. That was what we talked about, getting pinned, getting engaged, and getting married right after graduation. Seemed to be the world of the mid to late 50s. And looking back at my life, I refer to it as an unplanned life, but no thought of any postgraduate work or a, a definite career. You did get to medical school. And that led me into choosing endocrinology as my specialty when I did my residency and my postgraduate work. And, and does that relate to diet? It had a huge impact with diet. So many of childhood things, growth problems, the obesity that wasn't quite as rampant back in those days, but there were eating disorders that we saw in adolescents and preteens, even children as young as 10 and 11, showing signs. And so food and nutrition has always played a huge role in endocrinology. And then particularly when my practice became more adult-oriented, there were hypertension, high cholesterol levels, and then heart disease and stroke and cancer and diabetes and arthritis and all the chronic diseases all have a component related to nutrition. Eventually, you moved up to the Berkshires. Yes, that was 1984, and I opened a practice on East Street in Pittsfield. When I opened this practice, I'd already had almost 20 years of dealing with patients, and then that practice really got way too busy for me to run by myself. And so I went to Hillcrest to work in their outpatient endocrine. And clinic. what is Hillcrest? Well, Hillcrest Family Health Center. They had an outpatient family health center. And at one week, we did 12,000 finger stick cholesterol tests with the people of Pittsfield with the help of the nurses and their outpatient staff. So that was in the 80s. That was a huge topic. So we would do before and after an eight-week program. And we saw dramatic improvement in blood pressure and blood levels of sugar and cholesterol. During those eight-week courses, we had a whole program. We had handouts. We had diet sheets for them to follow. We had all kinds of recommendations. Can you remember what those recommendations were at that time? Because I remember when my father was diagnosed with high cholesterol, he had to have only corn oil. That was the thing at that time. I see you're making the, a face. There was a lot of misinformation around that. And I have to say, at that time, I was guilty, too, in a way, of having people have less saturated fat, not necessarily less cholesterol. Egg yolks were still fine. And I never was an advocate of margarine. At that time, margarine was recommended by the American Heart Association. That, to me, was an absolute no. I must say, I didn't know quite as much about trans fats as I have subsequently learned, but I knew that margarine was just an oil-based petroleum product and was not meant to be eaten. So we were up for small amounts of butter and not necessarily corn oil, but healthier oils. I, I really feel guilty myself of saying canola oil and safflower oil. Those were okay. Now I really feel olive oil is about the only halfway decent oil that one should have. But anyway, we did get remarkable results. People lost weight 
during the eight weeks. It might have been a little stringent. We gave them meals to eat every day, what they could have. And oatmeal, as it turns out, does lower cholesterol. We did a study with that. They were just eating more fruits and vegetables, more nuts, more whole grains, more lean protein, less fat than I would recommend now. But it worked for that time in raising awareness. So there's been a change. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll resume our conversation with Dr. Stephanie Bella. We're back. You're listening to Living Well into the Future. I'm Julie B. Adler, and our guest is Dr. Stephanie Belling. Canyon Ranch came to town, and I was contacted, and I explained my rather holistic, integrative approach to health that it was really a fit. And at that time, they were looking for a physician. So that's where I went. I was there for almost 20 years. It was a great practice. What kind of changes did you see over time in terms of the recommendations that were made? Not so much at Canyon Ranch, per se. I think they realized early on that one of the things that people wanted when they came there was really good food. They never permitted alcohol, as some other spas were doing. They were a little more rigid. Over the years, it it progress to be more keeping up with nutritional recommendations that didn't have to be so stringent and really emphasizing nutrient density. In other words, you could eat a lot of food of like huge salads of low caloric density, but high nutrient density. So you could have bigger portions of healthy food, smaller portions of less, quote, healthy food and feel very satisfied. During the time you were there, you wrote books. Can you tell us what drove you? to write them? The nutrition department actually had a lecture called Superfoods because we were now beginning to focus not just on vitamins and minerals in food that everybody knew about, but all these other things that people hadn't heard of, the polyphenols, the antioxidants, the free radical antagonists, and all of that, and, and that were in these various foods, most of which were colorful. I thought that was a great topic, and I researched it. So I wrote that, and Kathy Swift, our, our registered a dietitian at Canyon Ranch is really a genius. And she worked with me also on menu plans and other things. And one of our other nutritionists worked on the recipes. There were 140 recipes that the chef at Canyon Ranch did. And one of my own recipes in the introduction of that book is called Harvest Vegetable Soup because I had a huge vegetable garden, 24 raised beds, totally organic. There wasn't a chemical, a weed treatment, nothing. Weeding by hand. I'd go out with a very large plastic bag and I'd take everything that was out there. All the lettuces, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, potatoes, onions, leeks, cucumbers. It didn't matter. Just fill up this bag with whatever was really not, particularly for frost was coming in, tomatoes. And I get a huge stock, but I'd have to do this in batches, actually. And I'd make a stock with vegetable bouillon and all kinds of herbs, anything that caught my eye, caraway seeds, dill, fennel, ginger, turmeric, put it in and cook all these vegetables for hours, like five hours. But you're not throwing away the water, so whatever's in there stays in there. And then I'd have to blend it in small batches, and then I freeze it in 
various containers and all through the whole entire winter into the next spring. If I wanted to make a stock or I wanted to make a sauce or I just wanted a cup of soup with some bread or whatever, I had that. And that was harvest vegetable soup. So no measurement. Do whatever you want. Just grab whatever you've got. Omero Toro, whom you've just heard, volunteers at the People's Pantry, a food pantry in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. One of the things that he does there is to familiarize people with food who come yes. who don't recognize what is being offered or how to use it. We're only there twice a week, and I think through local farms and other places, there's food that a lot of people haven't seen, even people who probably grew up here. Just the other day, things like kohlrabi and like broccoli rabe, eri cover, and things like that were, and they're fresh. And people want ideas to use them. Jennifer Munoz, who you'll hear from later, in addition to and complementary to teaching about nutrition, runs a community garden program in the northern Berkshires. What I discovered in a lot of those neighborhoods, people hadn't ever grown their own food. They didn't have parents that grew their own food and maybe didn't even have grandparents that grew their own food. So the knowledge about fresh food, what it looks like, what parts you eat of the plant, what parts you don't eat of the plant, What can you eat fresh? What do you have to cook first? All of that lore that happens when you grow your own food, we had to restart teaching people about. She says that the art of cooking has become a lost art. She tries to introduce the people unfamiliar with fruits and vegetables to both, as well as cooking. Dr. Belling's recipe would be a great recipe to start with. Dr. Belling, what was your practice at Canyon Ranch? We knew that the nutrients in the fruits and vegetables were the life-giving nutrients. And we call them phytonutrients or phytochemicals. And they're in your colorful foods, your red, green, yellow, orange, purple, and blue foods. The colors are those phytonutrients. So I wrote the book, and it was really one of the first books to emphasize the importance and what these foods do in your body how they prevent disease, how they improve health. Not just prevent disease, but maintain health. So it's one of the first. After that, there were just slews of books, and they are to this day. It wasn't meant as a diet. It was meant to highlight the importance of including these foods in your diet, whatever your diet was. And if you switched away from a lot of those other foods, the processed foods, the meat foods, the dairy foods, and focused on fruits and vegetables and whole grains and beans and nuts and seeds, your diet would automatically be lowering calories and providing healthy fat. You didn't have to work very hard to or struggle. Just include these power foods in your diet and you would automatically have a healthy diet and you'd end up losing weight and your skin would look better, your hair would look better. It it was a no-brainer. The book came out in 1995. Would you change your advice for people today from what you wrote then? Well, for one thing, there's a chapter on soy. I would de-emphasize that. But tofu and those those are processed foods as well. They're good meat substitutes. But I might de-emphasize that in a newer version. But the advice is the same. Eat more of power foods and less of everything else. That remains unchanged. And the trick there is 
to seek out those foods and and just have them available for when you're cooking or just snacking. The other thing is I really don't have any chapters in there now on the timing of eating, and I think that's become important too, to have the majority of your calories midday or earlier in the day. That's when your metabolic fire is highest. It's easiest to digest. If you have your big heavy meal at night, you've got to deal with reflux and things a lot of people do. So eating earlier in the day and then having that gap, having an earlier dinner, a lighter dinner, and not eating after dinner. You know, as, as just as an advice, as a healthier way of being, getting away from the evening meal, the restaurant, out restaurant dinner as the big meal and a couple of drinks and too much food and then coming home and trying to get a good night's sleep. So it's all interrelated, sleeping, eating, activity. So those are things that are not in the book, that in a newer version, I would have the same advice about foods, power foods, colorful foods, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds and, and whole grains, a little more about the timing and the importance of that, why that's important. I'd have another chapter or two in a revised version. Do you think that your practice through Canyon Ranch had application to people who might not be able to afford to go to Canyon Ranch? Absolutely. I heard that very often from the readers of the book, that it just changed the way they thought about food and what food was doing. Food actually was their fuel. Food was being converted into their body. Get them starting to think in that line. What are you putting into your body that you actually would like to become part of your body. Is it all the chemicals that are in the processed food? Is it all that sugar that's added that's just going to boost your insulin and ultimately lead to insulin resistance? Is that what you want to be part of you? So people would start to think like that. So I know it made a difference. Dr. Belling's prescriptions for a healthy diet don't give the reader and eater hard and fast rules. Rather, she points people to healthy foods. That is also the case for the program on nutrition developed by the National Council on Aging that our next guest, Jennifer Munoz, Vassar graduate, former Peace Corps volunteer and community health worker, taught in one form or another for the last 10 years or so. You worked with a senior population Mm -hmm. to promote good nutrition for the elders of the community. Mm -hmm. What was the program and what are nutritional needs that are unique to elders? The program that I was doing through Target Hunger isn't ongoing, but there is a nationally vetted evidence-based program that I do now. It's a 10-part series called the Aging Mastery Program, and one of the 10 classes is about nutrition and hydration. So I think in particular for seniors, you often have lighter appetites. You often have maybe lost a partner or spouse or your children are gone, and so you lose your interest in cooking or preparing meals. People often just pick and snack. Certainly, that's exacerbated with the pandemic. A lot more people had to be home more and not out and social, which is an which is an appeal for folks to be able to go out and eat with others. Also, I think a lot of times dentition in elders makes it hard to enjoy the foods that you used to enjoy if you've had a change in dentition, if medication has changed, what kinds of foods you're allowed to have. Maybe you can't have grapefruits, or you can't have greens, or you can't have foods high in iron or low in this. or And so... 
convenience foods become appealing, and those are ten, tend to be high in sodium, not so great for your health, high in sugar, also not great, maybe even high in fat also, depending on the senior, maybe not so great. And <clears throat> when you present the program, how can you judge whether the information is taken up by the people mm-hmm. who are listening? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's nice about the Aging Mastery Program is 10 weeks long, and the um, healthy eating and hydration is early on in the series. And so we always circle back at the following class to the topic that we had before, and we talk about what did you hear that you liked? What worked? What did you try? What do you intend to try? What did you think? And so at the end, we also do a survey and find out that exactly what you're talking about. Because mastery isn't just having the knowledge. It's being able to activate that. It's, it's knowledge plus action is mastery. We've all got tons and tons of knowledge. We all know all kinds of stuff we should do. Our doctors told us to do. We all know how to do it, but we don't always do it. And so mastery is that taking it to the next step and creating reproducible and ongoing habits that... Around nutrition. Do you have word of advice for elders listening about (laughs) healthy diet that, that they should be particularly aware of? I think almost anybody can benefit from getting a referral from their primary doctor to speak to a dietitian because so much of the information that's out there can be confusing. People have particular medications or health concerns that are unique to them. So a lot of times the general information leaves a lot of questions. I, I'm actually a really big fan of having people speak to their primary doctor and get a referral for a dietitian who can address specific questions and specific concerns and can tailor guidance to that particular individual. Dr. Belling agrees. I want to emphasize the importance of knowing the whole individual. Nowadays, if you're lucky, if you get your 15 minutes with the doctor, and they're certainly not going to go with your family members and sit with you and solve a problem and get you into a class. So I think that's a negative for today and should be addressed in a larger venue than we've got here. The other thing that's really upsetting, even today, Harvard's Diet Review has come out 39 popular nutrition and weight loss plans and the science behind them. Now, would you think that the public could be confused? 39 different diets. Do you think any have value, the vegan diet or using alternative milk products to real milk or the fasting diets and all of these things that are very popular right now? I think some things have merit. I think the alternative milks are really essential. I really don't feel adult humans should be drinking cow milk. I think way back when, like I'm talking 14th century, do you know how people got milk? The cow would be walked around in the village and you'd squeeze out a little milk and you'd drink that. That's fine. It's not pasteurized. It's not homogenized. It's full of the enzymes that help you digest it. And you're not getting it in huge bottles. And that's a good way to have milk. But we can't do that now. And the raw milk fed, which there was some problem with tuberculosis, so that's really not that safe. But the commercial milk, which is pasteurized, even if it's skim, then you've got your fat products 
product particles broken up into tiny little bits that are not particularly good for you. So alternative milks, yay, I'm a fan of those, I think are really important. Avoiding artificial sugars. There's so much data now on that they're actually harmful. They can actually stimulate cravings, they can cause obesity, and they mess with your insulin resistance system. And so avoiding artificial, actually avoiding anything, avoiding artificial fats of artificial sugars. So those are certain basics. As far as the various diets, someone did a study of the blue zones. You know what they are? They're, no. they're places where people live well beyond 100. Oh, yeah. And they're healthy. They're active and they're healthy. They, they don't have chronic disease. And they're in far-flung places like Okinawa or Sardinia or Loma Linda, California. So some places are having fish. Some people are having olives. Some people are having meat, grass-fed. And there's no one. And maybe it depends where you live and what's available. And so there's way to have a healthy diet anywhere. I like to eat healthy food, but you could take me into any fast food restaurant. I could find something to eat. So there's always something if you educate yourself, I think. So it's not a particular diet. It's just some basics. As far as the fasting, this business, what they call now intermittent fasting, that's where you just don't eat for like at least a 12-hour period. But that's very easy. You have dinner early at six and don't have breakfast till late or nine. There you are. No midnight snack. And that's very helpful. All experimental work and every single species from the fruit fly that lives 24 hours and you starve it during those 24 hours to live 48 hours, waiting for its meal, whether it's mice, dogs, monkeys, and humans eat less, they live longer. This is a fact. Not everyone wants to go around with half the calories that they would normally have, but it's a fact. And the intermittent fasting goes a long way to that. And one of my recommendations when I lecture on how to be healthy, I refer to my book, The Power Foods. They're the colorful foods that have all the healthy plant nutrients in them. We know what they are, the green, orange, yellow fruits and vegetables. Eat more of those and less of everything else. As far as what to drink, lots of water and less of everything else. And that means juices, coffees, teas, alcoholic beverages. Just less doesn't mean none. Isn't that a simple diet? Thank you, Dr. Stephanie Belling, for sharing your insights into food that is good for us. As Dr. Belling and Jennifer Munoz reminded us, food choices need to be tailored to the individual. If, if you have a concern, consult your own doctor about what foods you should be eating and avoiding. Thank you to our guests today, Peter Alvarez, Omero Toro, Jennifer Munoz, and Dr. Stephanie Belling. Please let us know whether this program enhances your appreciation of generations other than yours. Tell us what you think about the issues we discuss. You can find more information about them on the Berkshire Ali website, berkshireali.org. You'll find this and future episodes of Living Well into the Future on WTBR 89.7 FM Pittsfield, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can reach us at lwitf22 at gmail.com. That's lwitf22 at gmail.com. Our thanks from me, Julie B. Adler, to Berkshire Ali and its Changing Aging Special Interest Group for their support, and to our team members, Fran Weinberg, Alan Kofstein, Dale Borman-Fink, Lucy Kennedy, and our intern, Ashley Delraditz. 
Our music is by Michael Koppenheffer. Our graphics are by Gene Rosso. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and not of WTBR Berkshire Ali or the LWITF production team.